When I was about eight or nine years old, I remember I had a friend come over to my house, and uh, Philip came over to my house, and the problem is when you have a friend over, the one hobby or one of the biggest hobbies of eight and nine-year-old boys is to ride your bike around, and so you adventure. It's your means of transportation. It is how you get everywhere. You do everything. It's how you find anything. The problem is when you have a friend over, you have one bike and two people, and it messes up, and so I remember that day we called uh, my friend down the street. They were out of town, and we said, hey, can Philip borrow David's bike for this day? And they said, oh, sure, just put it on the carport when you get done, and so That day, we adventured all over and explored our neighborhood, the neighborhood around us, everything. And then mom said, hey, it's time to eat. It's getting dark. You need to come in. And so I remember we walked that bike home. We put it in the carport, and we returned home and ate. Late that evening, we got a phone call. Hey, uh, we were looking. Did y'all have a chance to return David's bike? My mom said, well, yeah, Jordan and Philip took it down there. Well, it was not there anymore. And it it was my first interaction that there are just bad people cruising around neighborhoods looking to steal children's bikes. And it was one of those realizations of like, yeah, there are bad people that do bad things. And this is just the world that you live in. It was a wake-up call for eight-year-old or nine-year-old me just realizing this, I got to actually put my bike up. Like my dad said, don't just leave it in the yard all the time, right? And so it was just an interaction of that for the very first time. Today, we are going to interact with a person who in a lot of ways was a bad person, who did bad things, who in his guilt runs away, flees, but then whose life has changed and we get this idea of when do we offer second chances? What do we do about second chances? And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Let's talk about second chances. We're going to be in the book of Philemon, and so it's not the easiest one to find. I'm just going to be honest. So here's how we are. We're in the New Testament, and go through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Get through Acts and Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. You're going to get to the way I remember them in order. GE Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. That may be the only thing you learned today, and that was worth it, all right? GE Power Company. Then you get to the T's. 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and if you've gotten there, Philemon is next. If you've gotten to Hebrews, go backwards, all right? You've gone a hair too far. If you've gotten to Revelation, keep going back, all right? You know, we'll get there. So Philemon is what we are looking at, and this study or this letter to Philemon has three characters that we need to know about. The first is the author, Paul. Paul is writing a letter. Typically, he writes letters to churches in cities, but a few times he writes letters to individuals. This is a letter to an individual. Who is the individual he is writing to? Philemon. Philemon, what we will learn, is a man that lives in Colossae. He is a devout Christian who has come to Christ under Paul. He actually hosts a church in his home, so he is looked up to. He is well-regarded. He is living out this following of Jesus, even in some tumultuous times, very clearly and very publicly. And the third person in this letter is Onesimus. Onesimus is a slave of Philemon. He was a slave under the master Philemon, 
who then defrauds his master somehow. He lies, he cheats, he steals, he does something. And because he knows there is punishment for what he has done, he instead flees Philemon and he runs away. Eventually, he meets Paul in prison. This fugitive, runaway slave, now meeting Paul in prison. And those are the three characters that we have as we then open the text. So, Philemon, chapter 1, because there's only one chapter. There's 25 verses, but why don't we start in the first one today. It says this, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. This is who that message is to. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to stop there for just a brief second. Paul, I think, is I mean, he's starting off this letter very similarly to how he starts off all of his letters. He identifies the speaker, he identifies the audience, and he says, grace to you, peace to you, I love you, that sort of stuff. But I think it's interesting, Paul always chooses a designation for himself very particularly. Here, he says, I am a prisoner, a prisoner for Jesus Christ. Literally, Paul is a prisoner, okay? So, like, he is in literal prison, but he also understands that the one that is really over him, the one that is really in charge of him, isn't this government that is, that is causing him to be shackled, but no, he is a prisoner for Christ Jesus. That's what's gotten him in literal prison, but it's also whom is in control of his whole life every day. And so Paul is putting himself in this lowest position, a prisoner of Christ. He is at the command, at the commissioning, at the calling of Jesus. And so what does he say? Now he begins to explain who Philemon is. He says, verse 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. He's saying, I've heard about your faith and your love. And I am so proud and so thankful that it cheers me up. Verse 6, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ, that you will continue to be useful to God. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Paul is in prison. And he'll say in Philippians that while he is in prison, other people have to step up. And Philemon is definitely stepping up, and he is refreshing the souls of the saints and those around him. He is expanding the gospel. He is sharing what has changed his life. And Paul is encouraged by this. Paul is proud of this son of his that is now doing such great work. They are partners in the gospel together, and they, they, are, they are sharing in this faith. Paul is going to use this shared faith, this partnership that all believers share in, as kind of the crux of his argument or his request to Philemon. So we've talked about Paul as writing this, and we've talked about Philemon receiving this, and Philemon seems like a fantastic guy. But what about Onesimus? So Paul is going to write to him regarding Onesimus, but we, we need to understand that Onesimus here is really in a tough situation. See, it is most likely that as Paul has written this letter to Colossae and to Philemon, that in the caravan bringing this letter is Onesimus. 
Onesimus is the one that has brought this letter to his former master, the one that he cheated, the one that he defrauded, the one that he fled, and he is standing now in front of this man that he has abandoned. What must, what must Philemon be feeling? <laughs> he sees that there's a caravan coming, and then he sees him. He's wondering why they potentially didn't have him in shackles to bring him back. He's wondering why they are laughing and cutting up with this guy that is a known fugitive. His anger and animosity brewing within Philemon right now. Can you imagine what Onesimus is feeling? See, he was handed this letter by Paul, and Paul said, hey, I want you to take this. And he looks down, and he reads Colossae, and he goes, okay, I'm going to have to avoid some people when I get there because I'm kind of known there. And then he realizes there's a second letter, and it says Philemon, the man that I cheated. Paul, Paul, I, I don't think I'm the right guy to go and take this letter. He doesn't want to see me. He wants nothing to do with me. Did, did Onesimus, did he argue with Paul? Did he question, Paul, are you sure this is the right thing to do? I really wonder, do you think he, he thought about fleeing? I mean, he's done it once. It's in his nature and his character. That it, when he started getting close, did he go, I just can't do it. It's too much. But here you have, standing eye to eye, master, slave, innocent, guilty, fugitive, and the one searching out for him, standing eye to eye, and then he begins to read verse 8. It says this, accordingly, this is Paul writing to Philemon again, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. I'm going to stop there for just a second. Paul is saying in these opening lines of his request, he's saying, I very much could command you to do this. And in the hearing of everybody, just say, you have to do this. But he says, no, I'm not going to do that. He says, I know that Christ has worked in your life, and I trust that the change that he has made in your heart will change how you typically would act in this situation. And I'm going to trust that you're going to respond in accordance to the gospel. And he says, I want to tell you a bit about this Onesimus character. See, Onesimus is a child of mine. That doesn't mean that he bought him as a slave. That doesn't mean that he adopted him as a son. What that means is, in a spiritual sense, Onesimus has come to understand who Christ is, how he loves him, and he has given his life to following Christ. In a world where that is hated, discouraged, and really seen as treason, Onesimus is saying, I, a fugitive, I who know what the other side of the tracks look like, I who know that other life, he says, I want to give my life to Christ because he needs to be my Lord because nothing in this life satisfies. And Paul is saying to Philemon, I want to make this appeal to you on behalf of Onesimus. He is my son that I love. Let's keep going. Verse 11. He says, Formerly, 
I, uh, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. For this, is, this perhaps is why he has parted from, from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, maybe yours says a slave, no longer as a bondservant or slave, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Okay, a lot just happened there. I get that. So let's break down what's going on. First of all, Paul says, uh, he plays off the word Onesimus. Onesimus meaning useless. Paul says, absolutely, he was useless to you before. You, you, you had him as a slave. Not only was he useless, he was detrimental to you. He was a net negative on you and, and on your life. He was useless, but now he turns his name around. He says, but now he is useful. He, he is for good. He is doing these important matters for Paul. He is being used by Paul, doing what, what Paul can't do because of his imprisonment. He is saying, Onesimus has become a great light for the gospel. In a sense, he's saying, Paul is like my best. I mean, Onesimus is the best I've got. I heard an awesome story a few year, or about a year ago when I was reading a book from J.D. Greer. And it said this, he said, when we started this church, we wanted to be a sending church. And he said, what we soon realized is being a sending church is hard because you send away your best. He says, we want to be a church that plants churches. We want to be a church that sends missionaries. We want to be a church that, that goes where the gospel is not. And he said, but quickly we began to realize, God, you're sending, you're taking our best from us. Can't you just take our average or our problems? <laughs> Like, I'd love to stop receiving phone calls from them right now, right? Like, don't you want to lay that call on their lives? But no, he takes our best. And he said what it's caused us to do is it's caused us to have faith. One, that God is going to use them where he calls them. But two, that God will replenish for us what he takes. God here is taking who Paul would say, man, I love dearly. He is doing so much good work. He's taking my best, but Paul knows that this is where he ought to be. Verse 15, let's go back and read that. For this perhaps is why he parted from you for a while, that you may have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but much more than a slave, as a brother. Philemon is this church leader, respected and looked up to, whose life has been radically changed by God, who, who came to Christ through the teaching of Paul, actually. And he now hears his mentor call upon him and say, you have an opportunity. You have an opportunity to live out what you preach, what you teach. I mean, I don't want you to miss this. Paul is not only asking Philemon to forgive Onesimus, to not throw him in prison, or to start working him to death. No, Paul's not just saying forgive him and let him come back as a slave. Paul is saying let him come back in an elevated position as a brother. The master-slave relationship, Paul's saying, is broken. 
The innocent, guilty tension needs to be removed. No, you guys are on equal footing in the gospel. No longer a bondservant, but a brother. Paul will write in another book one time, he says this, here, talking of the gospel, talking of this partnership that we have when we all come under Christ, he says this, here there is not Greek and Jew, there's not circumcised and uncircumcised, there's not barbarian and Scythian, slave or free, no, he says, but Christ is all and in all. There's no division, is what Paul is saying. Do you know what letter that comes from? Colossians, chapter 3, verse 11. Onesimus has this letter in his hand, probably working a lot better than mine is right now, that he hands to Philemon. And in his other hand, he has this letter of Colossians saying, there is no division, there is no uh, dividing lines, there's no levels of abilities or appreciation in the church. No, we are all under Christ. There's no white collar and blue collar, rich or poor. There's no favoritism given to those that can provide more or give more. We are all equal in our standing at the foot of the cross. We are all equal in the eyes of Christ. We all receive the same love and the same grace from God. There is no distinction, so there must not be a distinction among us. We're brothers, we're sisters. What Paul is requesting with Philemon is wild. I mean, it it doesn't, I mean, it's explosive. It's contrast to everything that anybody would ever encourage you to do. I mean, there's nobody in the world, there's nobody in culture, there's no, I mean, even the most loving people would would never just say, oh yeah, just, just let it happen, just let it be. Paul is saying, love this man that cheated you, stole from you, fled from you, and cost you a lot. Love him like a brother. Love him as God has loved you. Verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. And if he wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it. To say nothing of you owing even your own self to me. Let's pause for just one more second there. Paul says, receive him as you would receive me. Treat him as you would treat me. Forgive him like you would forgive me. Forgive him completely. Paul here is modeling the gospel to us. He says, if he owes anything, put it on my tab. I will pay for it. I will give whatever I have to cover whatever sins, whatever problems he has caused. I will take it out of my own purse. I will pay for it, whatever it takes. I imagine as you're reading through the letter, it's line, 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 and then this huge signature by Paul stamping his approval on it and saying, look, this is my own writing. Somebody's not just dictating this. We didn't just add it flippantly. No, I want you to understand, I will cover whatever pain he has created. This, friends, is the gospel. The book of Philemon is really interesting because Jesus is only mentioned like once or twice. God is barely mentioned. The cross isn't mentioned. 
I mean, we don't have this theological treaty saying this is what Jesus did and because of A, this is B and all of this. No, the book of Philemon is living out the gospel in real life situations and really coming to the point that when we follow God and give him the lordship of our life, and when we understand the grace that we have received from him, we now become conduits of grace to others. We cannot be hoarders of the grace we have received. No, we have to be sharing and showing it to those around us. This only makes sense because their lives have been changed by the gospel. And so I say this over and over and over again. Changed lives live changed lives. If Jesus really is your Savior and Lord then your life needs to look different. You cannot go on living as you did before you knew Christ. Because when He changes your life, He changes how you live. This letter only makes sense because of the gospel. Only because Onesimus' life had been changed by Christ would he be willing to walk to his former master and hand this letter. Only because Philemon's heart has grown to understand the grace that he has received would Paul ever imagine that he would receive this letter and live it out. And Paul is only in position to write this letter because on that road to Damascus, his life was completely changed. See, before Damascus, Paul's not writing this. Before Paul's preaching, Philemon's not receiving this. Before that meeting in prison, Onesimus would never do this. But because the gospel has infected their lives, it has infected their whole being. Because changed lives live changed lives. And Paul is living out the gospel. He says, I will pay. Just as Christ has paid for your sins, in a sense, Paul is saying, I will pay for whatever sins Onesimus has created. I mean, whatever problems he has created. Let me read the final five verses and we can start wrapping this thing up. He says this, verse 20, Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart. He's saying, when I hear about what you do, it's just going to be so encouraging. Verse 21, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark and Aristarchus. I didn't get that right. I tried. I had it, and then I lost it. Sorry. Demas and Luke. Y'all are better at phonics than this Alabama boy. And my fellow workers. He's just saying, these people are praying for you. They love you. They care about you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Verse 21. Confident of your obedience. Confident. Paul knows. Paul knows him. Confident of your obedience. I know that you're going to do even more than I say. I don't think this is Paul twisting Philemon's arm. He's not heavy-handed making him be, be left with no choice. No. Paul knows the character of Philemon. He's already expressed it in verses 4 through 7. You are stepping up and doing things for the sake of Christ that I never imagined or envisioned. So why would he not believe that he is going to step up in love with the grace of God, this runaway slave, and embrace him back as a brother? This radical love. 
He knows it's going to happen. So let's talk about second chances. Maybe this morning you are in the place of Onesimus. Guilty. Maybe that is you. You have lied, you have cheated, you have stolen your way to where you are right now, and nobody knows. Well, you struggle because you know, and God knows. And you have wished and wanted this guilt to go away, but it will not, and you feel like now you have nowhere to turn, nowhere to go. You feel like you cannot share with anybody the depth that your sin has gotten to, the pit that you are in. But hear me out, church. The grace of God and the mercy of God is pursuing you like a father chasing down the prodigal to throw his arms around him to interrupt his apology so that he can celebrate his return. The God of grace and mercy is racing to you because he no longer wants you to remain dead, but he wants to celebrate that you're alive. About a week and a half ago, I had a friend call me in what probably for my whole life is probably the hardest phone call I've ever had. For about 45 minutes, he shared with me the depth of sin and how deep in the pit he had fallen. He shared with me how difficult some of the choices that he had made and how it had just ruined and ruled his life. His opening line was, I knew, Jordan, I knew if I could tell anybody, I could have told you, and it would have helped, but I never would work up the courage to admit and to confess, and as a result, the sin that has overtaken his life has now created a lot of major consequences for him to endure, because sin often doesn't come without consequences. But as that phone call continued and he shared and he shared, I then kind of interrupted him at one point and I just said, I only have one question. You can share all that with me, thank you. But here's my one question. How are you doing right now at receiving the grace of God? How are you doing at accepting that God loves you? How are you doing that trusting that His grace on the cross that paid for your sins actually pays for your sins no matter how much or how big? In essence, I said, I don't care the depth of your sin because I know the depth of God's love. Do you know it? Some of you are in that place of of Onesimus. Some of you are in the place of Philemon. You need to offer second chances. You need to extend some olive branches. You need to offer grace and mercy that has been offered to you. You need to reach out to somebody. You need to make a phone call. You need to walk across your property line. You need to reconcile and restore relationships that potentially you didn't even destroy. But because your life has been changed by Christ, you want to model and you want to show and share the grace that you have received. See, because as believers in the radical grace of God, we are called to demonstrate radical grace towards others. So who do you need to offer a second chance to? Some of you may be in the position of Paul. You may go, oh, that's a better position. I'm not in the midst of the tension. Okay? Will you be bold enough and courageous enough 
to be a mediator, to step in, to call people, to live out what they claim to believe. I love that line. I mentioned it earlier. The Bible Project, in its video on the book of Philemon, it says this pivotal line. It says, the implications of the gospel are personal, but never private. God speaks to you, but in his speaking to you, it is also for others. Jesus' family, it goes on to say, is a new humanity of equal partners who share together in God's healing mercy. We all receive the same grace. So remember as Jesus told his disciples to pray? We can't forget. He says, forgive us this day our debts as we forgive our debtors. The grace that we receive is also the grace that we show. So my question to you this morning is, are you people, are you known as people of grace? Or are you known as hoarders of grace? There's a huge difference. I want to end with a story. Some of you may know the story of Corey Ten Boom. She uh, was in the Netherlands in Holland, and her and her sister Betsy were arrested for concealing Jews in their house during the Nazi occupation of Holland. They were sent to a concentration camp at Ravensbrück. Betsy died. Corrie Ten Boom did not. Following that, she would then, after the war ended, the releasing of the prisoners, she would then go and teach around at different churches about her story and about how she has seen God throughout that whole experience. One night she was teaching when she recognized somebody. This is her account. It says, Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. Tinboom says, And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that outreached hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among the thousand women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. He then goes on to say, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there, he said. She was confirmed in her mind, yeah, he doesn't remember me, but I remember him. He goes on, but since that time, I have become a Christian I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out, and he asked, Will you forgive me? Tin Boom writes, I stood there. I, whose sin had again and again to be forgiven, could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking for it? I could not have, it could not have been more than a few seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But it seemed to me as hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. She says, I had to do it. I knew that. 
The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. And if you do not forgive men, Jesus says, their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. She went on to say, I knew it not only as a commandment, but I knew it from a daily experience. Since the end of the war, she had had a home in Holland for victims of the Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter how difficult or damaging their physical scars. But she said those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrific as that. She said, and I still, and still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too, she says. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help, she prayed. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You must supply the feeling, God. So woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. I forgive you. For a long moment, she writes, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. And I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. I don't know what the interaction of Philemon and Onesimus looked like. But I kind of think it looks something like this. The only way that a concentration camp prisoner and a guard who abused her over and over again, can have this moment is because Christ is their life. The only, moment that, the only way that a fugitive slave and his former owner can come together and live as brothers is because Christ is their life. And so the question really is simple. Do you know the grace of God? That no matter how deep of a pit you have dug, you are loved, desired, and chased after. But then also, those of us who know that, do you know that we now must be conduits of grace, showing and sharing to everybody we interact with, not seeking our own justice, our own goodness, our own what is right, but we are seeking the good of those around us no matter the cost that we incur. This is what the gospel calls us to. Church, we don't play church. We don't play Jesus. No, we talk about lordship here. And when he is the Lord of our life, he rules and reigns in us. And so as Jesus is our Savior, he is our Lord because changed lives with a Savior live changed lives because he's our Lord. Let me pray. Dear Lord, I...